Every word, when something is uh, happening that's so amazing, so different, in circumstances of a national crisis, Isaiah is seeing something remarkable. Not only is he seeing it, but he's explaining in this very personal story that he feels it as well. He feels the thundering. He feels the whole place shaking. He sees sights and sees pyrotechnics almost, smoke filling the building, and uh, thundering sounds, and then a train from the, uh, the, the throne filling the whole place. This is an overwhelming experience. And he's telling us he was there. And despite all the major trauma he'd been through, the stuff that had really rocked his life, and we all go through that sometime in our lives, to one degree or another, now he begins the most remarkable thing. He sees God. He sees God. Now we might say, well, that's a very unusual thing. And I suppose it is in that sense, because what's really happening is the veil is being pulled back. He is seeing something, and through what he sees, we're seeing it. Something is there all the time. The king, the God, our God, is on the throne all the time. But it so happens that at that moment, in Isaiah's life and in his trauma and in the difficulties he's facing, God pulls back the veil, the curtain, and allows him to see into what's really there all the time, even now. The veil's pulled back and he sees God. And look what he sees. He sees, uh, he sees all sorts of amazing things. He sees seraphim. And seraphim linked to the word burning. So I guess you might talk about burning love. Uh, George Whitfield talks about a burning love and wanting to have a burning love. Well, uh, there's a burning about these seraphim. And these seraphim are flying. Uh, it's a remarkable thought. <laughs> That's what they're doing. I know, he says, I was there. I saw it. Don't tell me it didn't happen. <laughs> I, I, I saw it. The veil was pulled back and this is what I saw. And it seems even these holy seraphim who've never ever been selfish, never ever said anything they should never have said, never ever done anything that they never should have done, never thought anything they never should have thought, totally different to us. In the presence of God, what do they do? Well, with two of their wings, they cover their faces, as if to say this, God is beyond us to look at even us. And then they cry. Look at the words in verse 3. They cry to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. Now God is, uh, is love, isn't he? And we know scripture tells us that God is love, but at no point in, in scripture do we ever hear the words God is love, love, love. God is just and full of justice and all things that are wrong will be made right ultimately. 
but we never hear God referred to as just, just or just. And yet here we have those words, holy, holy, holy. God is holy. God is entirely different. God is colossally different. We have those uh, lovely hymns that have been translated for us. Mighty Christ from time eternal. Mighty he man's nature takes. He's altogether different. He is mighty. Or William Williams' hymn. Here is love vast as the ocean. Vast as the ocean. No puddles, no ponds, no lakes. Even the ocean isn't big enough to contain all of his love and his power and authority. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He is taken aback by what he sees, what he feels, and what he knows to be true. Being overwhelmed by all this. But these seraphim, talking about God's holiness, the Lord of hosts is holy. And then, I guess another surprise might well have been that... Uh, the next part of that verse, in verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. Not just Judah or Jerusalem or the temple where he might well have been when this was happening. But the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth full of his glory. This isn't just a temple thing. This isn't just a country thing. This isn't just a nation thing. This isn't even just a continental thing. This is the whole earth full of his glory. Now clearly I've hardly got the words to even explain what's being said, never mind to convey to you what Isaiah was experiencing. But he was seeing God. But amazingly, verse 4 says that the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. This is getting even more overwhelming. And then verse 5. I was there, he says. This is what I saw. And this is my response to it, my reaction to seeing God. So I said, I said in verse 6, woe is me, woe is me. Now that word woe is, uh, is an, a deep experience. You might almost say a gut-wrenching experience. Something where you, the whole being is, uh, is taken deeply into your own experience and you feel broken. It implies almost a, a silent death. Something deep with inside your soul and your heart. Woe is me. Have you ever had a woe is me moment in your life when you say, whoa, and it goes really deep inside you? Some years ago, I was working in Carmarthen, uh, ordinary day, just minding my own business, getting on with business as usual. I had a phone call from Pat, my wife. You better come home quickly. Timothy, our oldest son, has caught his arm in a concrete mixer. Well, <clears throat> we have a woe is me moment. I guess you've had more difficult woe is me moments than that. 
what you can think, but deep down, well, I have to confess, even if you know this on video, I break every speed limit on the, that I possibly could to get home from Carmarthen to our house, about 15 miles. I arrived home, and if I did a woe was me moment when I was in Carmarthen, I had another one, which was even deeper, because outside of our house was three fire engines, three ambulances, and three police cars. We were on the edge of uh, three areas, so they all came. So I was imagining that he'd lost his arm, his head, whatever else he'd lost. Woe is me, I'm broken, I'm undone. This is unbelievably tough. I'll tell you the rest of the story afterwards, but he's all right now. But it was one of those moments, woe is me. Maybe you've had one of those moments in your whole life. Woe is me. But this is an amazing statement that Isaiah is making. And I'll tell you in a moment why it's even more amazing. But if you go back to chapter five, six, sorry, chapter five, and we were to go through chapter five, you'll see that Isaiah has been saying woe to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Woe because you say that things that are bad are good. And you say the things that are good are bad. There's no goodness in you. There's no justice in you. There's no rightness in you. There are greedy property owners who are exploiting others. Woe is you too. And he goes through these six woes. Six woes. Well, there's another sermon on this passage. If you want to look it up and listen to it, it's Sinclair Ferguson at Aberystwyth Light this year. It's online on the Evangelical Movement of Wales uh, website. And please go and have a look at it and be a lot better than this sermon but nevertheless one of the things that Sinclair Ferguson points out is that the there are six woes in chapter five and if you were a, a Jew if you were in Judah or Jerusalem at that time or if you've looked at scripture you'd be looking for the seventh where's the seventh woe to all these evil things and they were evil woe to all these evil people because they were doing evil things woe a deep woe to them God's judgment upon you for being like this. And then the seventh, where's the seventh? Well, Sinclair Ferguson says, here it is. Here's the seventh, woe is me. So he's been saying this as a prophet with great confidence, great clarity, God's holy, you're not. You need to be sort yourselves out or be judged. And now he says it about himself. And then even more, this, look what he says, if you just follow this verse. And you can hardly believe he's saying this of himself. Look what he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm broken. I'm fallen. I'm the person who's, uh, who's in a mess. I'm destroyed. I'm cut off. I'm lost. That's more or less what he's saying. But then he says this. This eloquent, this preacher this speaker this confident isaiah now says of himself what does he say i dwell in the uh, because i'm going to read from the beginning verse uh, verse six woe is me for i'm undone because i am a man of unclean lips even the best thing about him, which was his speaking and his preaching, I guess, and he would be confident in that and in declaiming others and stating God's judgment, of them, even that is wrecked. Even that is sinful. Even that is wicked. 
even the best thing he has, what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. Now at this point I just need to make something very clear. I'm not standing in front of you because I'm better than any of you. I'm afraid if I were to show a video of my life here, of what I'd thought and done and said, I wouldn't be here for very long. In fact, I'd be so fast through that door, I'd be running down the valley, anything to get away from here. Because there are things I've done and said I should never have done and never have said, and things I'm ashamed of. So I'm not standing here to say I'm better than you. I'm not. I'm one beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. And I'm saying to you that the Bible's clear, isn't it? You're the same as me. If I were to show a video of your life, would you stay? The things you'd said, the things you'd thought, the things you'd done, the things nobody else knows about. God knows, and it's up here. How many of us would say, oh, I'm fine, I'll sit and watch it. <laughs> I don't think so. And all of us are just as Isaiah was then. And here's the interesting thing. Even the best things we do are tainted with sin and failure. Even the best things. I don't need to explain that to you. Have a think about it. Have a pray about it. Mull it over. But it's true. Even our best things so we're broken people from top to bottom, just as Isaiah is. He's overwhelmed by seeing God, and in seeing God, he sees himself. And for you and for me, there's nothing more important than to see God, maybe not in, the, in this uh, fantastic way, but in a quieter way to see God, quietly opening the Bible, quietly looking for him, and quietly seeing how wonderful and holy he is and how unholy we are. To see him, to see ourselves. But then he goes further and he says this, uh, not only about me, I dwell in the, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he sees himself in the context of other people the people around him, the whole nation, in exactly the same place, because they've seen the King of Kings, the King and the Lord of Hosts. It's an interesting phrase, just to, as we pass there. The word there, Lord of Hosts, is used 5,500 times in the Bible, so it's quite an important word. And it refers to our God, the God who is who is and will be, who is and will continue to be for eternity, the existing one. The word hardly spoken by others in those days because it was regarded as so holy. My eyes have seen the king. And now, he's not talking about Uzziah. He's not talking about his trauma. He's not talking about the suffering and the difficulties he's had to face, the things that have wrecked him inside and he just can't put them together. No, now he's speaking about the king, the Lord of hosts. He's seen himself in the light of seeing God, and we all need to do that. 
we need to lose our confidence in our self-righteousness and start to see that we need forgiveness and cleansing. Anyway, what happens to him next? Well, as Sinclair Ferguson says, if you get all the best uh, filmmakers in the world, you would be amazed at what happens next because you could never have predicted. And if you know the passage, I suppose that spoils it for you in a sense because you know what's going to happen. But if you don't know it, and I was there, and I'm telling you all about it, you need to know because the next bit is even more amazing because this seraphim suddenly starts to fly and he flies towards me and what's he got in his hands or in his wings whatever however he holds it he's got this these tongues from the altar and from the altar the place of sacrifice and the place of shedding of blood he's got this red hot either coal or stone which he's carrying towards me he's flying towards me with this red hot thing now you know I was there don't tell me it didn't happen I was there don't tell me I'm telling stories this is real and I'm there and this seraphim is flying towards me it's a red hot thing and the most well just read it then one of the seraphim flew towards me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from the tongs from the altar and then what does he do verse 7 he touches my lips with it this red hot thing he touches my lips it's unheard of but that's what's happening and then the most wonderful wonderful thing happens because this seraphim speaks and listen to what the seraphim says behold this has touched your lips I don't think Isaiah had to be reminded about that he'd have known it your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged <laughs> your iniquity is taken away your perversity your guilt your depravity the things that no one else knows about the whole video that's been shown on the screen delete has been pressed it's all gone it's all dealt with and you and I if we know the forgiveness of God have that same experience the delete button is pressed there is now not a cloud between you and God if you've forgiven as I said I was forgiven there's not a cloud between us we and God forgiven cleansed Though your sins are as scarlet, they should be as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed. Now, you and I would want to hear, hurt ourselves with guilt. But God says it's gone. What does he say? Your iniquity is taken away, carried away. As far as the east is from the west. This is a remarkable thing to have said. But it's true of every person who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. The word depravity and guilt that's taken away is used 216 times in the Bible. Just thought you might be interested in that. Some people like numbers, others don't want to know, but there you go. It's an important phrase because it's repeated again and again and again. Taken away. Many years ago, in about 1910, a man called Watkin Roberts left Carnarvon in North Wales and went to Manipur in North East India right next to Burma Myanmar and when he went there he was a 
a pharmacist, but he really wanted to share the gospel with a, a tribe called the Ma tribe. And the Ma tribe then were headhunters. We've been over there, my wife and I, and that is what they say they were in about 1910. They were headhunters. That was their pride and joy. Collect a head, stick it in your uh, tribal home, and admire it. And uh, against all advice, Joaquin Roberts wanted to take the Christian gospel, this message of forgiveness and cleansing, of a place where the blood was shed and where a sacrifice has taken place, that, when that touches your heart and life, you can be cleansed completely. But he didn't know how to explain it. How could you explain to these tribes? Well, he had Mrs. Uh, Davis's five pounds, which she used in those days. And Mrs. Davis, we don't know who she was, just called Mrs. Davis. Somewhere in Wales, she gave five quid. And he got to translate it into the language of the Mars. He had some Gospels of John. So he had, and some of them were able to read them. But how could he explain? How, would the book do the job? Would the Bible do the job? And then he heard that uh, the tribes, when they warred against each other, would fight, obviously, incessantly but if they wanted to bring peace then what they did was they took a goat and they killed the goat and they took the blood of the goat and here's one tribe fighting against this tribe and they would take the blood and they spread the blood between the two tribes and as the blood was spread there was reconciliation that was a sign that they were being brought together and the enmity was over. He got it. That's what he explained. When Jesus Christ died, his blood was shed between God and you. And the enmity is over now if we come and trust him because his blood has been shed. And in this place, the place of sacrifice, the altar in chapter 6 of Isaiah, and the place of shedding of blood, that's how the forgiveness came. Not because the seraphim pronounced it, but because the sacrifice had been made, the blood had been shed to bring peace between the two. His guilt was carried away. There's a wonderful modern hymn that says this, a hundred billion failures disappear. <laughs> All of our failures dealt with, forgiven. It's amazing, you know, that's the Christian gospel. It's not a, it's not a sort of a bright, I was there, it's true. It's true for Isaiah, it can be true for you, and for many of us we know it's true for us now. But how can it be? Because it says here, your sin is purged, your sin is atoned for. Again, used 93 times in the Bible, to cover, to reconcile, to pacify, to atone for. Because his sins had been atoned for, on the sacrifice, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. That's the picture. It's the place of sacrifice, the place of shedding of blood. And why does it happen? Because the innocent dies for the guilty. On that place of sacrifice, the innocent dies for the guilty. I don't know if you know what happened on the 13th of August, 1831. Nobody would have been there, would you? <laughs> In Cardiff, on St. Mary Street, Dick Penderin was led out to be executed. And so he was. 
at eight o'clock on the 13th of August, 1831, at the age of 23. He was executed because a prison, a, a policeman, I understand, had been injured, not killed, but injured. And Dick Penderin had not done it. And most everybody knew, but someone was gonna be the scapegoat. Years later, a man in America, can't remember his name now, but he admitted that he'd done it. But it wasn't Dick Penderin. And so Dick Penderin was hanged in St. Mary Street in Cardiff. His last words were these. O Argluith, Duma Gamweth. O Lord, here is iniquity. And so it was. Dick Penderin hadn't done anything wrong. Someone else had done it. Someone else should have been dying on that in, in St. Mary Street, but it wasn't. It was Dick who died. And for you and for me, it's us who should be on the cross for punishment for our sins and our guilt. But here is the most amazing thing. Jesus has taken the punishment. The innocent has died for the guilty so that you and I could go free. The great exchange, he takes our guilt, he takes our punishment, and we take his forgiveness and his cleansing. And it's more than just the absence of guilt, it's, it's the presence of his goodness and kindness given to us, his righteousness given to us. Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. I won't go any further this morning on that. If, if Andrew's illness takes him away for a few weeks, I might have to end up coming back and doing the last part. But let Isaiah, in his own words, explain what we need to know. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and there just look at Isaiah later on in this, his book, in his prophecy, telling us what really happened, what can bring you healing and forgiveness and me too. <laughs> A slate wiped clean, the delete button pressed, forgiveness to us unworthy as we are, love poured out on us. Verse 3, chapter 53 of Isaiah. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he hid, as it were, our face, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What an amazing statement. It's the Bible, it's Isaiah, 
hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth. He's saying these things were going to happen. And people say the Bible's not inspired. Say the Bible's dead. It's living. It's his word. It's powerful. It's clear. It's undeniable. But let me read you another bit that Isaiah says. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Just the next page or so. Verse 1, Ho to everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and see and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Then verse 5, Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified me. And some advice to all of us, strong, clear, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This isn't just a little bit of pardon. Oh, tap on the head, forgiveness. This is abundant pardon. I used to work in Newport. I was a sort of school inspector. So I ended up going around schools and often the head teachers would do their best to keep me out of the classroom. And sometimes I didn't realise and sometimes I enjoyed what they did to try and keep me out of the classroom. And one school I went to, they always get, she always, the head teacher was a, an infant school, she'd always give you a piece of toast. Sit in a room and there'd be a piece of toast. Well, now, I don't know what you think a piece of toast looks like, but she would give this sort of door you know, stopper piece of toast, really thick. And I don't, I'm, when I'm on a diet, which is most of the time, very unsuccessfully, I scrape the butter on and scrape it off. You know, so it's just been there, but you don't know much that it tastes as that, but she didn't do it that way. Oh no. You had this huge piece of toast, really thick. And can you just imagine? The butter is really thick on it. And I'm wearing a suit and a tie in those days, so I have to be really careful, because as soon as you put your mat, you start biting it. Can you imagine this now? You bite into the piece of toast. For those of you who don't like toast, I apologise, but there you go. You bite into it and the, the butter starts running down. Have you ever had one of those pieces of toast? And you have to be careful it doesn't end up all over your suit. When she puts butter on, it was lavish. It was abundant. And I was grateful for it. it tasted lovely. <laughs> Listen what God does. He abundantly pardons. He lavishly pardons. He pardons beyond our wildest dreams. All the things you kick yourself for. All the things sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you have that cold ring down your spine. He forgives and he cleanses. And Isaiah speaks those words to you and to me thousands of years later. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. May God help you and help me to call on him. If yet, we've not yet come to know and trust him for ourselves, well maybe this is a good time to do it.
to bow our heads and to pray. We're going to sing a hymn now, which is, takes us to the foot of the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, not the wooden cross, not the blooded cross, the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. 